Thank you. Would you pray with me? God, we have a passage in front of us today that is a challenging one, and so I would ask by your spirit that you would enable us first to understand it, and second, to apply it to our lives. Only you can do that, Lord. So we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get to our passage, I just want to start with a thought. Um, do you know why I admire athletes so much? It's their effort. It's their discipline. It's their, I'm going to invent a word, stick-to-itiveness that they show up every day, rain, snow, sleet, cold, wind, doesn't matter, and they work out hard. Like it's the next day their game is, whether it is or not. I just admire them so much. Even if they're not feeling 100%, they're giving 100%. And I love athletes for that. I think that's why we enjoy watching sports so much because we know all the work and effort that goes in behind the scenes to what we watch. And I often think to myself, gosh, if I could only approach my faith that way, right? I could, I could show up every day and want to pray. I could show up every day and no matter what, rain, shine, whether I'm feeling 100% or whether I'm feeling like it at all, to just read my Bible in a way that it would soak into me. If I could just try harder, if I could really just devote a half hour every day even to start to just praying and reading my Bible, I think it would make me a nicer person. I think I wouldn't be so frustrated in traffic. And I think I would be more generous if I could just try harder. But praise God, <laughs> that's not the plan God has for us. That's not how he wants us to approach our faith life and our walk with him. It's not about our effort. So let's read the first part of our passage today in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says, for this reason, and this is Paul speaking, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 
I feel like when I read this passage, there should be soaring music behind me. It's just such a huge, huge prayer and a huge concept, and so I want to just wrap our heads around this a little bit. Let's start in verses 16 and 17. Paul's praying not that we would try harder and be better, although that would certainly be a great effect. Um, he prays that out of the glorious riches of God, that Christ would dwell in us richly, and that we would understand when he dwells in us richly how much he loves us. I think we say that so quickly that God loves us so much. And I think until you stop and really think about it, you don't really get it. So, going at this faith thing, it's sort of about me showing up, but it's not completely about me showing up. It's about God working through me. It's not out of my storehouse of good intentions or effort. Not out of my generous spirit. Thank the Lord, because some days, mm -mm. not in my own power or discipline or muscle memory. Instead, it's the power of God that He willingly and joyfully pours into us. We're going to come to discover as we go through this passage it's not really about us, it's about God. And that's on purpose. The Old Testament and New Testaments remind us of this truth, that it's about God, using the image of a tree, and I love this. In the Old Testament, listen to Jeremiah, starting in chapter 17, verse 5. Cursed is the one who trusts in man and who draws strength from mere flesh and whose hearts turn away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. Hmm. Anybody else been to a salt desert in their faith? Perhaps. But, Jeremiah continues, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. So there are these two starkly different images. Something trying to grow on its own in a parched desert, or a tree with its roots deep into the soil that is nourished by water coming up from the stream. Can you sort of see it in slow motion coming up through the tree and just nourishing it and making it grow and bear fruit? Those are the two choices we have. 
See, it's the idea that the tree is intentionally planted near the water, where the tree can, can draw its nourishment. Of course, the nourishment is God's word, because that is the nourishment that we need. The source is God's word and his very presence. When we pray, it's like water to us. We aren't really designed to be without water, and we're not really designed to be without being in God's Word and in connection with Him through His Spirit. If we place ourselves within reach of that nourishment and allow ourselves to drink from the source of strength and health, we will ever be growing. We don't have to worry about drought because we always have water. We always have the source of God nourishing us from the inside. The same idea of the tree in the New Testament, Jesus uses it in John 15, that famous passage about the vine and the branches. So again, listen, starting in verse 4 of John 15. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When we as disciples abide in, which is a Bible word for remain in, are nourished continually by regular prayer and scripture, we, like the branches, draw our nourishment from the source who is God himself. Only when we are nourished can we grow and bear fruit, right? That's logical. The branch that is cut off from the source of nourishment cannot produce flower and fruit. So how do we, as disciples, expect that we can grow in Christ-likeness if we're not connected to Christ? It's, it's so simple and yet profound. Only when we're nourished can we grow in your fruit. See, when the branch is, when the tree is planted near the stream or the branch remains in the vine connected, the branch never has to ask, am I going to have enough water today? What do I need? Is it going to be too sunny? Is it going to be too hot? No, we don't, the branch doesn't have to worry. It's being nourished from within. Once it's fed, it can then bear fruit. So think for a minute about that dry and dusty land, the desert. One of the animals that occupies that place is a camel. I find camels fascinating. They're humps. Crazy. So I looked this up. Camels can drink up to 53 gallons 
of water in three minutes. 53 gallons of water. I mean, you guys know what a five-gallon bucket looks like. Times 10 plus three gallons in three minutes. And then, and this is the amazing part, for the next seven months, that camel does not need another sip of water. The, the camel can drink it in three minutes, store it in the giant cup for seven months. It doesn't need to go anywhere near water for seven more months. And that's kind of a, a brilliant design for animals that live in the desert, because there isn't a lot of water. But I feel like sometimes we approach our faith life Animals. We try to go on Sunday and we try to get as much as we can and we're going to store it up all week long and have it get us through until we can come back to church and hear the word again. Huh. I don't think that's the way. We're not living in a desert. God's word is freely available to us. It's always available to nourish and strengthen us. So camels are cool for their setting, but we're not camels. We don't need to kind of save it up, like hoard it and save it up for ourselves. God is continually pouring into us, just the way the water is continually drawn up into the tree and the branches as we remain in him. It's an endless supply. It will never run out. You can never outgive God. No matter how much love and grace you give away, God's going to always replenish it and then some. He always has more. I was trying to think of the opposite image from a camel. So I came up with this. I don't know if it works. You know those little water fountains that kind of always are, I don't know what they're called, the perpetual water fountains. It keeps going down and then somehow it's drawn back up and it keeps looping around and the water continually runs, I sort of feel like that's what it's supposed to be like. God is nourishing us and pouring out into us and then we pour into other people and then God gets the glory and it goes back up and it starts all over again and it's just a cycle that keeps going. I feel like that's the design, not the camel design, but the perpetual water design. He pours into us, we pour into other people, he gets the glory, and the cycle begins again. Have you ever heard the expression, being the hands and feet of Jesus? Yeah. I think that's apt, because we are serving other people out of the overflow of what is in us. So if we're approaching our faith life like a camel and just getting where, what we can, when we can, and saving it up, we're not going to be really comfortable about pouring it out. As opposed to the tree can't help but take in nourishment and pour it out, bear fruit, which blesses other people. That's what we as disciples are supposed to be like. It allows us to be conduits of God's love and power. We're just the in-between phase of the cycle. And if we view ourselves this way, not as camels, but more like trees, 
or water fountains. It's not going to feel like such an effort to love other people and to serve other people. Knowing that we are going to continually be provided for means that we can continually be generous and provide for other people. We don't need to hoard it like a camel. So Paul gives us his best description of God's love and power in seven, verses 17 through 19. I'll read it again. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, so that, that image of the tree, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. God's love is deep and wide. It's more than we can really put words to. And he's constantly pouring it out generously on us. So we can constantly pour it out on other people. So that's the first part of our passage. The second part of our passage is the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Just the first three verses, because these ideas link together. We separate them, the Bible writers have separated them into chapters and verses, which can be helpful, but sometimes it's just one idea. So I'm going to read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul again. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As Paul transitions to the next chapter, he's essentially linking the idea of God's love is so powerful and so overflowing, we have to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. When I work um, in Bible studies and, and mentoring other students, I, I often use this passage and I say, what does that even mean, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received? I usually get a lot of crickets and blank stares. So I'm going to give you three illustrations that I hope will help. Number one, when my son was younger, um, we would tell him in the car on the way to church, as I'm sure many other parents have, how you act is a reflection on our family. <laughs> it's the pastor's kid's burden. I'm just saying they get a little bit more scrutiny. It's not fair, but it's just how it is. How you act reflects on us. <clears throat> so think about that when you're going to do something. Number two, on a larger level, when military personnel put on their uniform, they are representing our country. And they are held to certain standards. We expect them to represent the United States of America in an honorable and suitable way. They even take an oath 
to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Did I get that right? <laughs> yes, dear. Yes, you did. He always gets so nervous when I talk about military things because I am not an expert in that. They are prohibited, people in uniform, from engaging in partisan political activities, for example. They also cannot engage in commercial activities. They can't sell things for their own benefit. Why? Because they're supposed to act in ways that reflect the dignity of the service that the uniform represents. But on an even greater level, so we've taken it from an individual to a group of people, now we're going to take it even further. On an even greater level, when we call ourselves Christians, we put on the very name of Christ. We should act in ways that reflect well on his kingdom and his priorities and who he is, his values. So I think when Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, I think that means we have to know whose we are and who we represent. It's God. That's a little bit of an intimidating thought. So how do we know, here and now, in 2020, if we don't have a uniform on, if we are, in fact, living a life worthy of the calling, if we are representing Christ well? Well, Paul helps us out, because just when he finishes saying, live a life worthy of the calling, he gives us some specific things that characterize that to help us out. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, loving people, working hard to keep the unity among believers. See, it's pretty simple, at least in concept, when you make an effort to live representing Christ in a Christ-honoring manner, it immediately affects everybody around you. It's like Jesus' foot washing in the story that Pastor Howard read. Foot washing was the lowest of the low jobs of the lowest, least senior servant in every household. People walked around in sandals, in dusty areas of Palestine. When they came into a, a dinner party or any other time they came into the house, the lowest servant would be charged with washing their feet. I don't know if you've ever washed anybody else's feet. It's, it's, mm, it feels intimate and yet it feels weird. Um, but this was the job of the lowest servant. And yet, on that Passover evening, Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the feet of each of his disciples in turn. He became a servant. See, because living a life worthy of the calling you have received looks like the people around you go first. Other people get the best portion. To call back to Howard's recent sermon, you kill the best chicken and you have a servant heart about it. 
people you live with, people you work with, people you study with, people you hang out with, they get more than you do. They get more honor, they get more prestige, they get more credit, they get more joy, they have more stuff, they might even have more money. But your nourishment, what you need, comes from God. So you don't have to worry. It's a lifestyle that says, we will be the servant, and they will be the served. Jesus himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So that's the sacrificial lifestyle which we're aspiring to, and which is how we live up to the calling that we have received. Of that whole list, the thing that sticks out to me personally, I don't know if this is for you, but patience, it's not easy sometimes. Bearing with one another, being patient, sometimes takes all the effort you have if you're approaching it in your own strength like a camel. But if you're being nourished like the tree from the water, from the very presence of God, of course you're going to give to other people. Of course they're going to need things and you're going to be able to provide them. Of course. Of course you're going to be generous and not worry about yourself. No need to store it up. So you know what's really fun? If you fill a house with people who've all made the decision to live in a manner worthy of the calling they perceived as Christ's followers, it's kind of incredible. In a marriage, if you've got a husband and wife trying to outgive each other all day. No, let me do that for you, honey. Oh, thank you so much, honey. Thank you. They try to outgive each other, and it's just such a wonderful thing to see. And when siblings do this thing, they become servants to one another. They love each other so much that a big brother does things for a little brother, and a sister brags on another sister, and they just appreciate all the things that, about the other one that is good. But do you know what the absolute best is? when you get a church full of people who have this orientation, this servant heart, this nourishment from God from within that they are just overflowing with. Servant leaders, people like to call them. Miracles can happen. Looking back at Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in you. So it's really not about me, it's about God. It's about God's power and us being willing conduits of that power to other people. One last illustration, because I've got you thinking about camels, so sorry about that. There was um, a celebrated orchestra conductor, for those of you who like music, named Leonard Bernstein. 
celebrated conductor. He was asked the question, what is the hardest instrument to play? Hmm, well, he knows them all. But he replied instantly, without hesitation, second fiddle. What? I can always get people, plenty of people to play first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, that's a problem. And if nobody plays second, we don't have harmony. Interesting. The only way our church has harmony as believers in Christ who are all living up to the calling that we have received is if we're willing to play second fiddle all the time. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. If you've ever heard orchestra discord and lack of harmony, you know why harmony is so beautiful. So as we close our time together, ask yourself, are you approaching your life of faith like an athlete in training, believing that if you just try harder, it will go better? Are you like a camel taking one long drink and making it last for a really long time? Or instead, are you like a tree being continually nourished with the word and the presence of God in prayer and in study and in the company of other believers? Are you letting Christ's love dwell in you richly and serving others out of the depth and breadth and vastness of his love, pouring out on other people, knowing that it's going to be refined? Paul's word to the Ephesians tells us, don't be like a small. Instead, live a life that reflects well on the one that we love and serve, the name of Christ that we all put on as Christians. Because playing second fiddle for Jesus, it's beautiful and it's sacrificial and it's a reflection of Jesus himself. Pray with me.